Good morning. Welcome to Amen. It's good to be with you. It's the only Bible study in East Memphis that you have to park down to, downtown to attend, so uh, glad you all made it. Uh, incredibly rough this morning with the rain and the darkness, so uh, you're doubly applauded. But it's really my pleasure to be here with you. Um, this is my second time here at Amen, and it really is a privilege to get to study God's Word with you. Um, for some of you, uh, I just appreciate you. Uh, you didn't have much choice in the matter, but thank you for tolerating me. And we're going to be continuing on with uh, Sandy's study of Revelation. And I just want to begin by telling you a story about my son. He's uh, about 15 months old, and he's just getting into the discovery phase. Several uh, weeks ago, he started refusing uh, to take a bath. He just was ballistic about getting in the, in the bathtub. And because he had found out that he could work on Dad to get him to take him into the shower. And so every time Dad is in the shower, it's the imperative from my 15-month-old that he join me in the shower. He's sitting there banging on the door get, trying to get in. And, uh, and so one, one evening I was, I was getting him ready, and so I stripped him down, and he's standing there naked. And, and I'm starting to change. And as I'm pulling my shirt over my head, I hear this distinctive... I know what that is. That's the, that's the sound of water on a flat surface. And so I, uh, I get my shirt off and I look over and my son is going. <laughs> Sorry, the vulgarity. It's all men. Uh, I mean, he is in absolute disbelief of what has just happened. I mean, it's like he just put it together that that is where, you know, pee comes from. That, <laughs> And he's just looking at me wide-eyed, un- I mean, just in disbelief of what has gone on. You know, he's peed all over the carpet, and he's standing right in the middle of it, just laughing, and just giggling, ready to get into the shower. And the thing is, is the book of Revelation addresses uh, a group of churches who have, <laughs> who have peed on the carpet. I mean, you know. But they're not quite as innocent as my son. He hasn't put it together. You know, he doesn't understand anatomy yet. And he's not potty trained, nor should he be. But these churches should have been potty trained. And they, and they pissed the carpet. You know what I mean? Here it is. You know? And they've got a mess. And they're, act, and they're looking up in disbelief, wondering what's going on. You know, why, what exactly has happened? And so what Christ does for these churches is he writes letters through John. And he comes and thunders against them, giving them a word to draw them back to himself. And it's very common today for people to talk about the grace of Jesus, but to then not connect that this Jesus who is gracious with you, who pardons and forgives your sins, still has the right and the ability to thunder against you. And what we're going to look at this morning is that if a God who is gracious with you does not thunder against you, and if he cannot correct you, and if he does not do these things for you, then he's not truly gracious at all. And that's what we have in the, in the letter to the church of Pergamum. So if you'll join me, we'll start reading in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of God. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, you're familiar with the general outline, as Sandy has been explaining over the last several weeks, that John is on the island of Patmos, and he is in exile. And as he is on the island, he receives a vision from the Lord where he sees the exalted and reigning Christ before him. And Christ reveals what he is to write down to the churches. And so John is looking out off the island over the Aegean there, looking onto the mainland of Asia, and these are where these seven churches are outlined. And he's writing to the church in Pergamum. And we find that John uses a customary uh, letter form to write each of these churches. And we said that these letters share certain commonalities. And so you just see that the format of the message to Pergamum, first you have a church name. Secondly, you have Christ's name. Then you have Christ's commendation of the church, what they were good at. They had been faithful through many difficult struggles and trials, even martyrdom. Then you have a critique what they have not been faithful with. And this particular church was compromised by the teachings of Balaam and by the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And then past the critique, you you have some instruction, what they were to do. The direct instruction today is that they were to repent. You have a warning. And then you have a final word of promise or encouragement. And so that is the general shape of our letter for today and what we're going to be walking through. So look with me just in the content of the message to Pergamum. We're going to break this down into three points. The first is just that the city of Pergamum is under siege to Christ. The city of Pergamum is under siege to Christ. And you might ask, well, what exactly do you mean? But let's look first at why the city of Pergamum was under siege to Christ. If you'll look with me in verse 13 and in verse 12 and 13, you see that there are two references here to the city. It says where Satan has his throne, and then at the end of 13, where Satan lives. John did not just have a lapse that he wrote Satan once. You know, he, did, he didn't forget that he had just written it down. He didn't have amnesia. He was drawing attention to something for us. And so he includes it twice that Pergamum is the place of Satan's throne, is the place where Satan lives, because he wanted to emphasize something to us. And this is specifically why John says that Christ is sieging Pergamum, because it's the place where Satan dwells and lives. Now, we saw last week in Smyrna that there also was satanic activity there. And do you remember where it took place? It took place in the religious place, the synagogue. The synagogue was a synagogue of Satan. And so here, though, in Pergamum, we have Satan revealing himself in other institutions. And they are specifically the religious and the political institutions. And so we have a strong presence of Satan and his forces arrayed against Christ. And I just want to give you a little bit of background explaining what exactly was going on in Pergamum. Pliny says this, that Pergamum was the most distinguished city in all of Asia. Even though we might not be that familiar with it, it was one of the most notable cities at that time. It was quite impressive because it was built on a cone-shaped hill that had about a thousand foot elevation. And at the very top was the citadel, 
where there were the royal buildings and the sacrificial buildings where the, where the pagan cults had their practices. But it was impressive as you came up the valley there, you could only see the city of Pergamum overshadowing it. And so it was a nice city, extremely important. And the emperors of Rome found it to be central to how they were going to govern the province of Asia. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But there were two specific things going on in the city that caused John to say that it was a, that it was a center of activity for Satan. And the first of those is this. It was a center of worship for four pagan gods. It was a center of worship for the pagan gods. You'll find several different gods worshipped. Zeus was the first. And Zeus had an altar that was at the very crown of the hill where any good citizen of the city was to go and sacrifice. Let me connect this for you because Zeus was seen as the deliverer of the city. Under Attalus I, Zeus had been attributed the victory over the barbarians that saved the city of Pergamum. So to not offer sacrifices to Zeus was to not be a patriot. It wasn't just that you weren't an, uh, a worshiper of the Greek gods. It was something far more, that citizenship and loyalty were intertwined with the religious ethics of the day. And so if you did not sacrifice to Zeus, go up to the shrine, you were unpatriotic. Now you can imagine, many of you have seen uh, patriotism in our country erode, and it, it really makes some of you angry when you see someone burn a flag or you see someone disrespect the Pledge of Allegiance, or you see someone trample um, civil rights, or something like that, that you consider them unpatriotic and it makes you angry. Well, that's the same thing that was happening for the early Christians. It's because they would not sacrifice to Zeus. They were considered unpatriotic. And it made the citizens of Pergamum around them angry. So it starts giving you the background and the feelings. There was also shrines to Athene, who was the patron goddess of the city, Dionysos, who was another uh, uh, Greek god. And then you had this one final figure, Asclepios, and he was an interesting god because he was unique to the city of Pergamum, and he was called the god of healing. And people from all over the ancient world, around the Mediterranean, actually came to the city to worship the god Asclepios that they might find healing. And there was a particular name designated for this god. He was called the Savior. And it's the same Greek word that was attributed to Jesus. So do you see why they could not worship this god who had the same name as their, their Savior, Jesus Christ? That it brought them into a conflict of language and a conflict of worship. But that was what was going on in the pagan center. And Sandy explained last week the connection with the trade guilds that if you were involved in industry in the city, that you were engaged in these idolatrous practices. There were several connections. First, the, the trade guilds were interested in promoting the patriotism of the city. And so to be a patriot, you had to be an idolater. And so if you were a silversmith, you were required to go to the pagan festivals. If you didn't, you were going to be out of business. No one would give you any patronage. You would be socially ostracized and cut off. Secondly, you'll find this example in Acts 19. Oftentimes your trade guild uh, or your livelihood of your vocation was based on these idolatrous practices. In Acts 19, you find an example of the silversmiths in the city so angry at the Apostle Paul because he was turning people away from idols. You know where it was hitting the silversmiths? In the checkbook. <laughs> 
You can guarantee they got mad. What is this? This guy's taking away our livelihood. I don't think they were that interested in the idols, but they were dang sure interested in the checkbook. <laughs> He's killing us. And so there were economic interests as well, as long with patriot interests. And so you didn't want to defy the trade guilds. And so there was very powerful social forces that were tied with the religious forces at work. But then secondly, and probably more significantly, is that Pergamum had become a center for uh, the cult worship, worship of the emperor of Rome. Now, it was unique in this regard. In 29 B.C., Augustus had established the city, in the city a temple for worship of Caesar. And then Trajan, he built a second temple during his reign where the people of the surrounding region would come to the city and worship the emperor. Now, what was to go on in emperor worship was simply that you would offer a sacrifice for the well-being of the emperor, and then you were to swear a confession. And I want you to think about this confession. It was just simply saying, Caesar is Lord. Curios Caesar. And why the Christians couldn't swear this is because it was in line with their fundamental confession that you'll find in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Curios Jesus Christos. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so you had a fundamental divide here. There were oaths that were uh, counter to one another. And they were sworn in opposition to each other. And so the Christians were quite in a quagmire because they could not swear loyalty to Caesar. And they were actually making a uh, seditious oath when they swore loyalty to Christ. And so what would often happen is that as soon as the Roman authorities began to understand what was going on in the Christian community and people would not swear loyalty, that not only were they unpatriotic, but now they were seditious. They were traitors of the state, and they had to be prosecuted and punished. And so the way the local merchants worked this out, and it's quite crafty, is that if you were unpatriotic and you wouldn't worship the Greek gods, they would inform the Roman authorities because they knew that you would not give your worship to Caesar if you did not give your worship to the Greek gods. And so the Christians were actually considered atheists. <laughs> Quite one of the paradoxes and ironies of their existence. But they were considered to be atheists because they would not join in the emperor worship, nor would they join in the worship of the Greek gods. So that gives you the background. And that is why Christ is sieging the city. Now, why do I say siege, though? We need to look at the name of Jesus. Look at it in verse 12. We, we, we've talked about that Christ gives himself a self-designation in all of these letters. And that self-designation is tied to what this church needed to be encouraged in, what was part of their situation. And that self-designation is this. He says that these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, I put here for you on your sheet that the sharp, double-edged sword is a designation of rule and authority. Where exactly did I get that from? That develops out of Isaiah in the 11th chapter, if you look in the 4th verse, and in the 49th chapter, if you look in the 2nd verse. But there is talk of the Messiah who is to come, who will rule and reign over all the ends of the earth, and he will strike the earth with his tongue, and he will bring justice and equity. And what we find is also that this idea is further developed in Revelation 19, where you find that Jesus has the, the sword coming out of his mouth, which is his tongue, which will judge the nations. And then just after that, right after that, in Revelation 19, verse 16, you find that this Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, what does that mean? 
In other words, what I'm saying is that Jesus is the divine right. He has the divine right over all the ends of the earth. Abraham Kuyper says it like this. He says, there's not one square inch over the earth that Jesus does not claim, it is mine, it is mine, it is mine. That He claims to reign and rule over all the ends of the earth. And so He's sieging the city of Pergamum because they do not give Him His divine right. They do not give Him the worship and allegiance that He is due. They pay their allegiance to silly gods of wood and stone and they give their allegiance to a man who happens to rule a large empire. But Jesus has a much larger empire. He has much larger imperial interests and so He desires the worship of the people and so He's laging siege and He's threatening to come in judgment if these do not offer their worship. And that is the picture. You have a picture here of a divine warrior who is about to wage holy war. And holy war is going to be waged on one of two fronts. Either holy war was waged on Christ, on Christ in the, at the cross, where He was judged on your behalf, and He becomes your shelter through faith, and God alleviates the holy war. He declares peace with you. He declares that things are reconciled. There's no longer hostility. Or He's going to wage holy war if you don't find shelter in Christ. He'll bring it on our own heads. And that this Christ will come and bring judgment if you don't find shelter in Him. Now, some of you might find that just absolutely barbaric. How in the world, in a sophistic, how, how can we in our sophisticated world believe in a God who would judge so ruthlessly? How can you say things like a holy warrior, a divine warrior who wants to enter into judgment with, with those who don't worship Him? And I understand the question because it might sound barbaric, but I do want to just ask, ask you back if you struggle with these things, why cannot God bring justice on the earth? And there's a very provocative writer. His name is Miroslav Volf. He is from Yugoslavia. And he came to the United States and began to notice that in our theological circles it was very unpopular to talk about a God of judgment. And Volf had survived through some atrocities in Yugoslavia and he had seen many painful things. And I just want to read to you what he wrote. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West. But, but imagine speaking to people where cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers had their throats slit. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of a thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. If God were not going to right injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Did you catch what he said? That a God who doesn't enter into judgment, that it takes the comfort of a suburb to believe such a horrible thing. Now that turns on our heads what we often believe. But what he says is that the world is so unjust and is filled with such corruption and with such decay that if God is not the one who finally brings justice, then this, that God is not worthy of our worship and this world is not worthy to be lived in. And so just know that God's justice has a firm foundation. And it should challenge us, but we should firmly submit to it and know that His justice has been satisfied for the Christian at the cross. But for those who do not find the cross and do not understand it and do not submit to it, 
that God's justice will be found on them, that Christ will come to reign over all the ends of the earth and bring them to account. So that is the sharp double-edged sword as a designation of rule and authority. But we said that the, the designation of the name, the double-edged sword, that it was given for comfort for the church. The church in Pergamum had been undergoing persecution. They had lost a faithful witness named Antipas. And they had seen people die in their midst. They were ostracized from the trade guilds. They had been cut off from society at large. And now they were starting to be put to death by the Roman Empire. They were definitely in hard times. And so Christ comes to speak a word of encouragement to them in the midst of their difficulty. And what does He tell them? He tells them that He is their warrior. That He is the one who defends and protects. And that He is the one who will vindicate all the wrong in the world. And so what are the implications? Have them simply there for you. First, do not fear their power. He says, do not fear their power. Because Jesus here in the term, the double-edged sword, that's the term for the Roman soldier's sword. That Jesus is the one who truly wields the power of the sword. Therefore, do not fear Rome. There's no reason for you to cower under their pressure because they ultimately do not run things. That I am the one in charge, I am the warrior, and so you entrust yourself to me. And you take it as far as it needs to be taken. And that's the second point. That hold fast to your confession of faith in the face of social ostracism and even death. That this was what Christ was saying. Whatever the outcome may be, you hold to me. Because in the end, I will come and judge the nations. I will make the wrong right. I will bring justice. You leave that in my hands. I am the just God who is worthy of your worship. And so, gentlemen, we can rest in the knowledge that Jesus will bring about justice despite what injustice may surround us. Antipas, did he deserve to die? He was a worshiper of the true God. He wouldn't give his worship to the emperor of Rome. And he was put to death. And there are actual followers of Antipas who we know from history under the emperor Diocletian who they were miners and they refused to mine gold to make the god um, that I mentioned earlier, Asclepios. They wouldn't mine the gold to make the god Asclepios. And know what happened? They were put to death. And history is recorded that they were followers of Antipas. And they were martyred for their faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a prisoner in World War II under the Nazi regime. And he was imprisoned at Flossenburg for many years. And then right prior to the um, Allied freeing of the camp, the Nazis put him to death. And everyone around Bonhoeffer knew that he was a man of true conviction. Every morning they saw him rise and pray. They saw him bless his enemies. They saw him forgive them. He pastored this whole little prison. Because that's why he was imprisoned. He was imprisoned for his faith. And the last morning, they came in and they knew what was about to happen. Prison Bonhoeffer, he rose, looked to one of his friends. He says, this is the end. But it's only the beginning of life for me. And he was taken out and hanged two days before the Allies liberated the camp. He was a martyr for his faith. And so we have to ask, how do we begin to have character like that? How do we begin to form character in our own lives that if we were ever put to the real test, that we would respond, yes, Jesus is Lord. 
Now, the reality is that most of us in this room will not face that test. And that is okay. You don't have to be martyred to be a Christian. But the question is, for me and for you, is would we stand the test if asked? What would be our response? Would we cave into the pressure just because of convenience? Or would we give the good confession? And I had to do some disciplined thinking about this myself. The other year I'd gotten married and I had a child on the way. And I began to notice, just amidst all of God's wonderful blessings in my life, that I began to compromise things. That I had some things dear in this world that were beginning to compromise my faith in Jesus. <laughs> that I wasn't as hardcore and convicted anymore. I found myself wondering about this question. If I were asked, would I rather be around on earth? Would I rather save my head to be with my wife and family? And I wasn't sure. So I began to ask myself, well, how would I know? How can I work on this? And i just give you this one question that I put here for you. But how do we prepare? How do you prepare for that moment that you might not ever face? And I say that this has great practical value for you in your daily living. It's that you die daily. The way that you know whether you'll give the good confession at your death, if you are asked to be martyred, is that you are dying daily. Now, gentlemen, if we are cheating on our taxes, if we're cheating on our wives, at least in thought, if not in deed, if we're cheating our children of our time, if we're cheating the church of our tithe, if we're cheating the poor of being generous, then we should not expect that we would give a good confession if we were asked to be martyred for our faith. If we're not faithful in the small things of life, then we need not expect that we would be faithful in the larger things. And those are questions that we all have to ask ourselves. We need to diagnose our hearts and ask where our heart truly lies. See where our treasure is truly stored up. Because Jesus extends to us great promises, but He also has great demands for us. And He wants us to hold fast to our faith. And my prayer for you and for myself this morning is to join Henry Light. He was a 19th century hymn writer. And he wrote a wonderful hymn called, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, all and up to follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be, perish every fond ambition, all I've ever hoped or known. This is hope and glad fruition. God and heaven are still my own. That we would lose everything and be willing to embrace Christ, that we'd be willing to embrace Him with that much passion and to have it impact our daily lives as to how we live, that we would die daily to live to Him. And so that is what Christ is calling us to in the siege. And join me now in our second point, simply that the church in Pergamum is compromised by idolatry and immorality. And this is in verses 14 through 16. Now you saw that Christ has a critique of this church. Though they had been faithful during the martyrdom of Antipas and they were holding fast to their faith, but there was compromise in the ranks. And so Christ has a critique. But I want you to notice something very quick. What did Christ not critique them for? They were in the place where Satan lives. They were at the throne of Satan. Christ did not critique them for living in that city. What He critiques them for is being of the city. But he does not critique them for being in the city. And this is our call, that we are not called out to cocoon ourselves and to protect ourselves. That we are called into the very place where satanic powers are operative 
and they work in all kinds of realms. They work in religious realms. They work in political realms. They work in economic realms, and we're called to do battle with them. And so know that Christ is calling you into the city, the place where there is conflict. And so don't disengage and cocoon yourself off behind a gated community. It's okay to live in a gated community, but don't just stay there. Get out. Get off the poplar corridor. Go see some parts of the city where there's challenging things, where there's hard things, where people need Jesus. So go engage with your city. But what was going on here is that there was some false teaching. And he says it like this. He says there's some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And then he says a little bit later that some are holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, those are essentially the same heresy, so I'm going to unpack them together. But what is exactly going on? Some of you are familiar with the story of Balaam out of Numbers 25. It's a familiar story. You know the story everybody remembers from childhood. Balaam's ass. Ooh, the Bible cussed. You know, that was our favorite in Sunday school. And uh, with just little delights like that. Or Jesus wept, our memory verse that we all (laughs) put to memory. But the story of Balaam is really intriguing. It has great application to what was going on. What had happened was this. Is that uh, King Balak, who, was the, um, who, who ruled over Moab, wanted uh, to compromise the Israelites. And he found himself at war with the Israelites. And so he hired this prophet named Balaam to, give a, to place a curse upon the people of Israel. Well, what ends up happening is that Balaam can't curse. He starts blessing the people of Israel. Balak gets extremely frustrated with him. And the story goes on. Their relationship continues. And what we find out in Numbers 31 is that Balaam had given some advice to the Moabite women. He said, look, entice the men. Entice the men to come and worship with you. Because do you know what went on in Canaanite worship? A lot of rowdy stuff. It wasn't about just offering food, sacrificing it to Baal on the mountaintop. You also got to join in the sexual liturgy. Sounds like a good religion, huh? <laughs> they, they had shrine prostitutes. And you got to engage in all kinds of lewd sex acts there on the mountain shrine, worshiping your God. That was the God of Baal. And so you see why the Israelite men might have been attracted to it. They had the offer of free sex. The beer, the beer companies were not the first to figure this out, that sex sells. You know, this is ancient. This goes way back. And so the men of Israel were enticed. And they went, and they not only engaged in immorality, chiefly they engaged in idolatry. And it says in Numbers 25 that they prostrated themselves before Baal. And the Lord was angry about it. They had been compromised by the people in the land. Now, the overlap with our situation is this. is that It appears that there were some Christian teachers in the city of Pergamum who were telling the Christians that it was okay to worship the pagan gods. It was okay to swear the oath of loyalty to Caesar. Now, why was it okay? Because we don't really believe it. Okay, guys, we know those gods aren't real. We know that Caesar's not truly Lord. But for the sake of your head and for the sake of your business, don't, I mean, do swear the oath. You see what they were teaching? They were teaching a slight and subtle compromise in order that they would keep their heads, in order that they would keep their social reputations that they would not be ostracized from the city. And so it's very slight. It's very subtle. But it is a compromise. And Christ here is thundering against it because He doesn't want compromise in His church. And He confronts it head on to say, no, that we cannot go that direction. And you might say, it's not a bad rationalization. 
I can't say that the thought wouldn't have gone through my head. In fact, I can't say that I wouldn't have wanted to have been one of those teachers. It was much more convenient, wasn't it? And that's the question for us. How might we in East Memphis compromise our faith today? Now, none of you are committing the sins of the Nicolaitans. We don't have cults like this anymore. But how are we compromised by the city around us? Where do we just blindly accept its values and don't allow Christ to critique them? Where do we accept things socially and vocationally and personally that would compromise us? And I've asked you this question. However, do we compromise ourselves with the world around us for the sake of social, vocational, and personal convenience? And we need desperately to apply that to our lives, to ask that question. I'll give you one example. As I've come to Memphis, I've gotten a chance to meet a lot of businessmen. And it's been a wonderful experience because I didn't take any economics or business classes. And so it's really fascinating to me to find out all the, the gadgets and gadgets and all the things that go on in the daily affairs of business. And one of the questions that I've been asking uh, pretty frequently is, how do people in your field lack integrity? How do you find people compromising their claim to Christian faith? Or how do you find unbelievers uh, getting ahead? And so the answers have been just taken on multiple different formats. And it's always intriguing to see how creative we humans are. <laughs> just, just how good we are at getting ahead. But one of the things that was very consistent is that it happened in every field. And that the temptations were great. Whether it was overselling real estate, whether it was diagnosing something that wasn't quite true, whether it might be overstating a thesis, whatever it might be, there were fields where people were shading, shading the truth in order to get ahead. And that's just one area in our vocations where we might be tempted to compromise with our world in order to stay competitive. After all, we've got to keep the doors open. After all, I had a bad month before, and I need the money this month. After all, I need to put my kids through school. I've got all these bills to pay. Do you see the pressures that rain in? And they force us and try to push us to tempt us to compromise. But a fundamental part of our faith is that we would not lose our good confession, that Christ is Lord. And that means that all of our lives are brought under His authority. And we ask Him to scrutinize every single area. And you know the most effective way that I've found to scrutinize my life? I've been married for almost five years. And that's not very long compared to most of you in the room. But the most effective question I have learned to ask is, Honey, what do you think about my life in this area? It is the most ashaming and debasing thing that I can do. <laughs> because she knows when I come with the question that I'm admitting there's something probably wrong. And that I'm opening myself to where she might think I'm off. But it is the most helpful thing to have your wife and good friends who you can ask that to and expect honest answers. That someone could thunder against you because you might be hearing the very voice of Christ in their thunder. He might be disciplining you and reproving you. And so what is to be our response, though? What is to be the response once we hear the thunder? Christ comes and thunders against His church, says that they are compromised with idolatry and immorality. The response is in verse 16, and it's an imperative verb. This is not optional. It's not left to your choice. It's not only if you want to be a good Christian. 
Everyone who makes the profession of faith when they find themselves compromised like this has but one choice, and that is to repent. It's that you turn and that you change. That you come to God knowing that you are freely forgiven and that you then swear loyalty to Him and ask that He change you. It's not an option. Now, sometimes, guys, we get confused about what repentance is. And I put here for you a few of the things that we tend to think of. What it is not, it's not a groveling in guilt. Okay? In repentance, you don't make yourself feel guilty enough so that God will forgive you. That's what many of us try to do. And we try to just make ourselves feel bad enough and eventually God will forgive us. That's not what repentance is. Secondly, we, we tend to think it's an attempt to atone. We think that, you know, if we plead loud enough, if we plead hard enough, that we will make God forgive us. Guys, your sins have been atoned for. Repentance is a renewal. It's a coming to Him and knowing His free grace. You're not paying anything off. And finally, it's emotion we go through. And this is just when our traditionalism takes over. We know that we're asked for forgiveness of our sins. And we just do that. We confess, yes, God, I know I'm a sinner. But you know what we never do? We never look at our individual and specific sins, the actual things that make up us being a sinner. And that's one of the most dangerous places to be as a Christian. And Christ calls His church to repent. He calls them to turn and to change and to know that they are freely given, to freely come to Him, and He will pardon, and then to ask Him for power that your life might be transformed. Now, what was Jesus asking this church to repent for? I put here for you, A, that there were sins of idolatry and immorality. We saw those. That the people were going to the pagan shrines. They were engaging in the sex rites. They were going to Caesar's temple and swearing allegiance to Him. Now, they said, look, it doesn't mean a thing to me. I'm just going through the motions. But they were actually doing it. And He was calling them on the carpet. You've peed on the carpet and repent. You know better. You're compromising yourselves. But Jesus was also calling another group in the church to repent. Because this was not everybody. The text explicitly says there were some who were holding these teachings. But if there were some holding the teachings in the congregation, what were others doing? Tolerating it. Oh, you know, I know him. Our families go way back. We just got to let it go. You know, he'll work it out. That's between he and Jesus. They'll get it straight. That's the basic attitude that was going on. They had been tolerating it. They were allowing the compromise to live. And guys, I just have to say this. That we need communities of discipline that we need to be able to go to our brothers in what Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says. It says, if any of you are spiritual, if you catch one in a trespass, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Share the burden of Christ. Fulfill His law in loving your brother. That is the command. When you go to your brother and you correct him and say, I think you're compromised, or are you compromised in this area? You're not going as a super spiritual guru. You go humbly and you gently seek restoration. But do you realize what we're flirting with? If we don't, is that your brother might be in extreme danger and trouble and that we need to be communities of discipline and that our churches need to practice these disciplines as well. And that's how you know if your church really loves you. That's whether you know a community is really concerned for you is if they'll thunder against you. 
That's how you know. And that's what I need. That's what we all need is a community who would love us that much to when we're wrong, they would tell us. You need friends and you need a church with rulers and elders who would hold you to these standards and hold them up in account. And then be here. Just this idea of the discipline of Christ. Hebrews 12 makes it really plain. And I'm just going to reference this passage. Makes it really plain that we're to be a community of discipline and under the discipline of Christ by saying this, if you don't have discipline, you're an illegitimate son. The Colson translation, which would be very raw, you're a bastard. That's what it's saying. I'm honest. It's saying it very directly. If you don't have God's discipline in your life, then you're not His true son. So if He can't thunder against you, then you don't really have His grace. He pardons you, but don't think just because He's pardoned, He's done with you. Grace has a remedy that forgives your sins, but it also has a design that will purify you from sin. You will never be sinless, but there will be this trend moving you upwards towards the direction of Christ in conformity to Him. And that is God's design in all of our lives. And it's the best news that we can possibly have. In order to get it done, He has to thunder against us from time to time. And we've got to be willing to hear it. Don't just, trust in this, don't just rest in this fluffy idea of grace. He forgives me and I can do what I want. He's going to thunder. And know that when He thunders against you, that is good news. Because He is drawing you into conformity to Himself. And you find here that the imperative is that we are to repent. And if we don't repent, what happens? Look at the end of verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus makes it very clear that if there is no repentance, that he will come and war. But notice who he's warring against. The first promise of Revelation 19 was that they were going to war, he was going to war against the nations, against those who were aligned with Satan and with his throne in all of its various manifestations, that he would come and bring justice to those who were not joined to him. But who does he say he will come and bring justice on here? Those inside the church who are not repenting. And this is a good reminder for us that just because we have joined the membership of our churches, just because we have made the profession of faith, does not necessarily guarantee anything. If we truly are believing and our lives are lived in constant repentance and we're turning to Christ, then it's good. But it's very possible, guys, to play church, to be all around the church. You might even be all up front and doing all the things. Do you know how many pastors have walked away? It's just a big charade. They walked away after something else. It's very possible for all of us to do that. None of us are above it. If you think you are, then watch out. Be very careful because sin is waiting and lurking around every corner to deceive you. And you might find yourself like the Nicolaitans, like these people in Pergamum. You might find yourself compromised. And Jesus might come and thunder against you. And that's what we want to avoid. And so he will come and fight. Now put here for you, he will lay siege to the unrepentant in his church if they continue in their disobedience. But again, the good news is that Jesus comes to discipline in order to restore us. And so know that his discipline is good. It's gracious and it's kind. And it's intended 
for our legitimate sonship that we would not be bastards. We would not be illegitimate. There would be true sons with discipline. All of you here have fathers. And you have different types of fathers. My dad was going to get the chance to be here today, but they got delayed. But my dad was a good father. And you know why? Because he could thunder at me. And he would. Butch Colson and Chuck Colson look nothing alike. My dad's about 5'10 and stocky and big. And he would come after me when I smarted off. He would come after me when I was disobedient. And he would do it in love in order to correct me. And I'm, I hated it at the time. And I was the scourge of my peer group oftentimes because my parents were so strict, they said. And it made me so mad when I was 18. But you know, when I'm 28 now, I look back and I'm so happy. I'm so glad. Because He kept me between the big white lines. You know? He kept me moving towards Christ. He kept me repenting and kept me believing. Kept me in the church. And I'm so thankful for what He did for me. And that's a small parable of what God does for us as well. He thunders and it's for your good. And one other note. Out of the Numbers 25 passage, it's very interesting. After the Israelite men committed their idolatry and their immorality that a plague broke out on the nation of Israel. 24,000 people, it says, died. God came and visited them with holy war because they had been disobedient. You know how the plague was stopped? The grandson of Aaron, his name was Phinehas. He was standing in the camp, and a young man paraded right by Moses with his Moabite wife. He was brazen about it. He walked right in front of Moses, the text says, right into his tent, where what we were to imagine is they began to have sex. Phinehas picks up a spear, angered for the Lord, angered that God had been disrespected, that his law was being broken inside the camp. Phinehas goes to the tent and drives the spear through the Israelite and through the Moabite woman. And it says the plague relented. Now, in the Old Testament, that was the act of excommunication. (laughs) Serious. We're not called to drive spears through anyone today, but we're called to be communities of discipline. We're called to hold our brothers to account. And that is what the church is to do. That even in excommunicating someone, turning someone outside of fellowship with the church, and you find this all in the Corinthian letters from Paul, is that it's for their restoration and for their repentance. That we need communities like that. You need brothers like that. You need a church like that. Because none of us are beyond taking this slip and this slide. We're all prone to it. And finally, the church in Pergamum is promised a future reward. Let's just revisit it because it's been a little while since we read it. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. There are two rewards promised to those who would repent and enjoy the fruits of repentance. That they would enjoy the hidden manna and they would also receive a white stone with a name written on it that only they would know. Two future rewards that Jesus extends. And so what exactly are those? The hidden manna. 
Well, this idea is unfolded throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. As you can see, John presents ideas and then unfolds them as he goes. And this hidden manna, if we were to trace this through the book, that it finds its culmination at the wedding banquet of the Lamb, at the final messianic banquet where Jesus welcomes His people into the fellowship of God in a new heavens and new earth. So the hidden manna, that's where we will eat it. We will eat it in Christ's real presence, where He stands before us. Our sins have been pardoned. Our sins have been completely and finally purged. They've been taken away, and we'll eat the true bread of life. We'll be invited to eat of the tree of life, and we'll have eternal fellowship with God. That is the hidden manna that's being offered. It's promised. And guys, when we take communion, it's not just something looking back to what Jesus did on the cross. When you take communion, you're looking forward to this messianic banquet. You're looking forward to that great meal. And you're celebrating that just as certainly as you put that bread in your mouth, and just as certainly as you tasted that grape juice or wine, that that's as certain as that future banquet is. It's that real, and it's coming very soon. That's what we're to look for in the hidden manna. And secondly, the white stone with a new name. White stones had various uses in the, in the Greek world, and we can't be exact on this. Commentators are very confused about the issue. Each one will offer a different solution. But I'll give you my best. Is that white stones were often used in judgments of acquittal. It's like being blackballed in a fraternity. I got blackballed. Anybody else join me? <laughs> but if you got a negative vote, there was a black stone passed. If someone thought you were guilty, you were blackballed. But if you were accepted, you were white stoned. You received a white stone. You were accepted. And do you notice who is handing out the white stones of acceptance and of acquittal? That you've been judged not guilty. That you've been allowed into this messianic banquet. It's Jesus Himself. And that's what He promises to those who would hold faithful, who would hold fast to His testimony, who would believe Him, who would not tolerate compromise, who would live in a community of discipline and accept it graciously, who would love His discipline, is that He promises this. That your sins are forgiven. That you're acquitted. That all the things that Rome might say about you, that they call you an atheist, that they call you an outcast, those things are not true. Because my judgment is the one that lasts ultimately and finally. And there are three promises here in the, in the new name. Because on this stone, there was written a new name. What is that name? won't go into the uh, in-depth theology of it, but just look at those verses there in Revelation 19 and 22. But that new name is actually the name of Christ that is emblazoned on that stone. And when you are identified with the name of Christ, there are three things that come. First, intimacy. There's an intimacy of you knowing that name and of Christ knowing that name. And only the redeemed of Jesus know it. Only those who have been forgiven. And so you have great intimacy with your Creator and Redeemer on that final day when He hands you your stone. Secondly, security. In the ancient world, when someone named someone, when they placed a name on them, they were identifying them with themselves. They were coming under their protection and care. Christ is saying that you are coming under His eternal protection and care on that final day. That he will forever, you will be forever secure. There's no more threat of sin. There's no more threat of turning apostate. There's no more threat of compromise. You are eternally secure with him. 
And finally, conformity. When someone named you in the ancient world, they were sharing with you their character and their power. They were bringing you into their fold. And they were expecting that you would reflect the dignity of that fold or that family. You were to reflect that. And so when Christ names you, He's inviting you to share in who He is. And that will be the truth on the final day. You'll be finally conformed. But gentlemen, all these, present, all these promises are also currently partially realized that you have an intimacy because the name of Christ has been placed upon you. That you have a security because you're brought up under the One who is the divine warrior, who is the reigning King, and who will make that known in the future. And that you also have a conformity. That He's changing you and He's bringing about this glorious transformation. So these promises are partially realized and they'll be in full on the final day. And so we can rejoice and be glad in this Christ. And the question is, can you hear Him thunder? And can you know that it's good? And can you repent if you recognize you're compromised? Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank You that You love us enough to thunder against us. We know that we are a people who are prone to compromise. We see how subtly it happens in Your Word. And God, we ask that when we find ourselves compromised that we would repent. And so might we have brothers and wives and friends who would be willing to correct us and that we would listen and hear. Would we not be too proud to defend ourselves and to justify ourselves? But will we come repenting? And will we know that for those who hold fast the testimony, who hold on to Jesus, that they will conquer, they will be given some of the hidden manna, and they will be given a white stone of acquittal with a new name written on it, with all the promises that come with that new name, intimacy, security, conformity, all that you give us. And so will we know these things in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.